heaven, no microphones. I can hardly wait. That was a precious time in the life of our church when we went through Strength in the River together. And so we're going to do that again, Strength in the Desert. And I am, I am uh, excited about this. I've spent a number of days just going through the Bible and examining some of these people. And really to narrow it down to only 15 was actually hard. Um, so I think that'll be a good time. So that's first of all. Second of all, um, I want to briefly, and I'll do this more properly later, but briefly thank you for your support in my uh, work and my doctor of ministry uh, program and certainly for this uh, very generous gift. Also, uh, somebody that doesn't attend here, just so we know, doesn't attend, asked me at graduation, so now that you have your doctorate, does that mean you're going to get a raise or you're going to go to a different church? Is that what you're going to do? And I haven't been tempted to physically hurt somebody in a long time. I, no, no, this isn't for me. It was for you. This, uh, this is the best church in the world. Why would I go anywhere else? So, uh, no, it, it was for you. And I, I hope that, that the work that I did will continue to benefit the body. That's, that was the whole purpose. That was the reason. So I am thankful to you for your support and for your love um, during the three and a half years that it took to go through that. Well, that being said, turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and it is our joy to get back to the Gospel of John. It is necessary in the life of the church to do topical studies at times. We went through parenting. We did some brief looks at some important ecclesiology topics on the church. But ultimately, it is our greatest joy, as we've already done this morning, to just focus on Christ and get back to seeing him in all of his glory. And so we're going to read from John chapter 8, verses 12, verse 12 through verse 20, if you'll follow along with me. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. I've lost track of how many times I've heard quoted from the Bible. Well, the Bible says, sing to the Lord a new song as an excuse to only sing new songs. There are churches in America that won't sing a song for longer than a month, and then it goes in the trash can, never to be heard from again. To have a, a disdain and a condescension towards songs that our mothers and grandmothers and fathers and grandfathers in the faith sang, those songs that were sung 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,500 years ago, and especially if you use the dreaded word, hymn. That's meant to make us think of dust and funerals and just old. We're not with it if we sing hymns. 
But what is a hymn precisely? Well, the word hymn is a transliteration of the Greek word humnas, and it simply means a song of praise toward a god. Now, of course, for Christians and now for the world, a, a hymn has become a song of praise toward the one true God. But a hymn is primarily God-focused. It's not usually a song telling God how devoted I'm going to be. It's more often a song speaking of how faithful and true God is. A, a hymn is theological in nature. It recounts for us the truths of Scripture in song form. As a matter of fact, Greek has a verbal form whom neo, it means to sing, and so to sing a song of praise is to him. I'm going to him. We could properly say not just I'm going to sing a hymn, we could say I'm going to him a hymn. Hymns go all the way back to the early church. Ephesians 5.19 commands the church to sing hymns when we gather together, and because they're theological in nature, they're meant to render praise to God, and they're meant to remind ourselves of the truths of God. This is why Ephesians 5.19 says we sing hymns to one another. Hymns are meant to be repeated. It's not just a one-shot wonder never to be sung again. I mentioned before the oldest known extra-biblical hymn was discovered in Egypt and dates back to about 260 A.D. It's intensely theological. It contains both lyrics in Greek and musical notations. The English translation only has seven lines, but listen to what it teaches in seven lines. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of the omnipotence of God, and the doctrine of the kingly rule of God over the nations in seven lines. As a matter of fact, it uses the verb him in it as a verb. And it goes like this in English. Let it be silent. Let the luminous stars not shine. Let the winds and all the noisy rivers die down. As we hymn the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let all the powers add, Amen, Amen. Empire, praise always, and glory to God, the sole giver of good things, Amen and Amen. That's intensely theological in just a few lines. Now, all through the history of the church, the Lord has given us hymn writers for every age, and the very best of the best, we continue to sing over and over and over again to be reminded in familiar fashion of the glories of God as revealed in Scripture, to sing the truths of the cross and of Christ. You see, the hymn writers knew something. They know that there's very little in our worship of God which can endure beyond the hymn which takes Scripture and explains it. Uh, hymns outlast even the greatest sermons. They stay with us for a lifetime. They lead us all the way home to heaven. Now, I can prove this to you right now. Almost all of you can immediately recall, Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. What's the next line? How great thou art. And you can hear it in your mind. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you right now remember what I preached last week? You don't. And don't lie by raising your hand. But the thing is, the songs stay with us. The songs stay with us. Listen, when I'm on my deathbed, I don't want to listen to a sermon. I want to hear a hymn. I want to hear the songs that I've sung for the decades of my walk with the Lord. And so what the hymn writers knew is that scriptural truth puts to, put to song carries us for a lifetime of praise to and trust in the Lord. And so as we take the coming weeks to examine John 8 and 9, we're going to see the great hymn writers of the, of the past and great hymn writers of the present we're going to see that they took these principles and these truths 
and they put them to memorable music, hymns for us to rehearse these truths for ourselves. And so we're calling this mini-series What the Hymn Writers Knew. What the Hymn Writers Knew. And today what the Hymn Writers Knew is that our Savior Christ is fairest Lord Jesus. Now, we don't use the word fair in the way that that hymn does really very often anymore. The way that particular use is is given, it means something that's flawless, something of perfection. And the best way to, to explain this is to remind you of the 1937 Disney movie Snow White. And the evil queen, she gazes at herself in the mirror and she says, which is often misquoted, by the way, magic mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Of course, she wants the answer to be herself. Eventually, the mirror says, over the seven jeweled hills in the cottage of the seven dwarves dwells Snow White, fairest one of all. But the evil queen and the mirror both get it wrong. The hymn writer knew, fairest Lord Jesus. And he said in verse 3, Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Now, where do you think the hymnist got the understanding that Jesus is the one who shines brighter, the one who shines purer than even all the angels of heaven combined? Well, he gets them from the word of Jesus Christ himself in John 8, 12. But we really need to set up to understand what Jesus is saying when he said, I am the light of the world. This is what that hymn is based upon. So if you'd indulge me for a few minutes, I think that this text is really more easily understood in the context of the bigger picture of Scripture. The the important metaphor of light in Scripture, it cannot be overestimated. It's absolutely everywhere. And in particular, the concept of light very often has direct connections to God himself in a variety of ways. And I want to just survey some of these connections for you so that we can understand the significance of John 8, verse 12. Let me give you a few of these connections. First of all, God alone is the solution to darkness. God alone is the solution to darkness. Genesis 1, we go all the way to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, you have to understand something. Remember, you cannot understand darkness without light, and you cannot understand light without darkness. You must have both. And so right off, woven into the very created order was this dichotomy of darkness and light, and God as the one who solved the darkness. Here's another connection. God has the character of steadfast love. God has the character of steadfast love. Now, light was created before the light givers were created. In other words, God didn't create the sun, moon, and stars and then say, oh, cool, look what those things are doing. It wasn't a surprise to him. He created the light first, and then Genesis 1, beginning in verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night 
and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Now, what does that have to do with the character of steadfast love? Well, the psalmist understood this particular creative act of God as proving something. Psalm 136, beginning in verse 7, says, To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. In other words, that as the sun and the moon just keep going and going and going, that's how the steadfast love of the Lord works. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Here's a third connection between God and light. God's holiness will not endure sin. His holiness will not endure sin. There's a theological outworking of light versus darkness. 1 John 1, 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Isaiah 6 says that God is holy, holy, holy. That God cannot abide unholy and impure men. He will only abide with those who are like him, those who are of the light. There's another connection between God and light. God gives favor to those he chooses to love. God gives favor to those he chooses to love. The book of Exodus records God's rescue of his chosen people of Israel from Egypt, and God used ten plagues to demonstrate his might to Egypt. And the ninth plague, of course, was the plague of darkness. It was darkness that was so deep that Exodus 10, verse 21 says it was a darkness to be felt. But very interestingly, it was localized. It was localized. Exodus 10, beginning in verse 22, says Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Uh, That's phenomenal. Uh, Apparently, there must have been a line somewhere. You could stick darkness, light, darkness, light. God's showing his favor. There's another connection between God and light. God will lead his people in love. God will lead his people in love. As Israel was leaving the promised land of Egypt to go, or leaving Egypt to go to the promised land, rather, Exodus 13 records, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. They didn't need smartphones or Google Maps. They just had the glory of God going before them in the form of light. There's another connection, a sixth connection. God will guard his people in love. God will guard his people in love. When Israel camped at the Red Sea, they were trapped before the coming slaughter of Pharaoh's army. But God stood between them to guard Israel before the sea was parted. Exodus 14 records this, beginning in verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Did you notice that the text says there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night? What does that mean? On the Egyptian side, it was completely dark, and on the Israelite side, it was completely light. 
Why? Because God will guard his people in love. There's a seventh connection. God will remind his people that he's present. God will remind his people that he's present. God is an invisible God. He is spirit. And so in the very first expression of national worship in Israel, the tabernacle, a traveling worship center, he gave them a reminder. Exodus 25, 31 says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. And this lampstand was to do something. It was to provide light at the table with bread called the bread of the presence. It's a reminder of the presence of God with his people. Leviticus 24, 2 says that that light from that lampstand was to burn continually to show that God is with his people continually. There's another connection. God is working even when we don't see him. God is working even when we don't see him. The book of Esther is all about God's faithfulness to his people even when they're not faithful. Exiled Jews who had chosen to stay in Persia were suddenly in extreme danger. That The Persian emperor had been tricked into signing a death decree for all the Jews in all the provinces. But in a book in which God is never mentioned and which prayer to God is never mentioned, God still providentially was working behind the scenes to save his people. And what was the reaction of the people being spared? We get maybe the biggest hint in the whole book as to who was actually behind this rescue. Esther 8, verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy. That's the only clue we get, the God of light. There's a ninth connection between God and the metaphor of light. God gives good to those who love him. God gives good to those who love him. In Psalm 4, the psalmist asks a rhetorical question. It's a question asked by mankind ever since the time people have turned away from God. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? These are the people who don't know God, who are not following him. They're not worshiping him and they're they're trying to find happiness with with feasting and with drunkenness and so the psalmist answers his own question there are many who say who will show us some good lift up the light of your face upon us O god you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound there's another connection between god and the metaphor of light god alone can lead you through danger God alone can lead you through danger. Psalm 18, beginning in verse 28. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. Similarly, Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In other words, this picture's God is the only hope of reaching life, reaching safety, reaching a place where there's no more danger. And the metaphor is that he lights my lamp. He lights my way. There's another connection between God and light. God is the only means to fearlessness. He's the only means to fearlessness. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That God, as the light giver, gives confidence. He gives courage. And by the way, the Israelites were trained to sing Psalm 27, verse 1, to build confidence. Why? Because at the end of this psalm, 
They needed confidence when they had to obey the very last verse, which says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And listen, even a little kid understands the the connection between fearlessness and light. A child is much less afraid when the light is on than when the room is dark. They know this instinctively. There's another connection between God and the metaphor of light. God lights the way to spiritual victory. He lights the way to spiritual victory. Psalm 44 is the story of retelling the story of Israel's conquest of Canaan. Beginning in verse 1, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. God lit the way to victory. How about this one? If you're counting, this is number 13. God's light is the source of all true joy. God's light is the source of all true joy. That there are people on earth who are so filled with joy from God that they worship with loud gladness. Loud gladness. And the psalmist tells us why. Psalm 89 verse 15 says, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. That there's no greater joy than being accompanied through life by the presence of God who gives favor and blessing. There's another connection. God is clothed in his own majesty. God is clothed in his own majesty. I mean, if you're picking clothes for the God of the universe, how are you going to picture him? Well, here's how the writer of Psalm 104 pictures him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. He's saying, God, if you were a man, your clothing would be pure light. There's another connection. God gives his light to illumine his own kindness. He gives his light to illumine his own kindness. Psalm 112, beginning in verse 1, says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. In other words, it's only by the light of God that we recognize that he is gracious. In other words, he's kind to those who don't deserve kindness. He's merciful. He's kind to those who do deserve his wrath. And he's righteous. He's kind to those who are in need of righteousness. And so God lights the way to his own kindness. There's another connection. God provides his wisdom in the word of God. God provides his wisdom in the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. When the prophet Daniel was called up to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and when God revealed to Daniel not only the meaning of the dream, but the content of the dream, Daniel praised God as the only one who holds wisdom. 
And here was his prayer in Daniel 2, beginning in verse 20. Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. In other words, Daniel is asserting that there is no wisdom outside of the knowledge and the word of God. Here's another connection, number 17, if you're keeping count. God invites people to receive forgiveness of sin. He invites people to receive forgiveness of sin. In Isaiah's invitation to Israel to return and be faithful to God, he gives this beautiful offer in Isaiah 2, verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to walk in the light of the Lord? Well, 1 John 1, 7 tells us it invites the faithful to walk in the light of God as God is in the light. And in the context of 1 John 1, 7, it's forgiveness of sin. To walk in the light of the Lord is to walk forgiven, to walk with your sins paid for. There's another connection God's glory is manifested as light. God's glory is manifested as light. Ezekiel receives this stunning vision of the throne room of heaven, and we see the brilliance of the manifested, the displayed glory of God. And listen to a key theme, beginning in Ezekiel 1, verse 26. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Fire, fire, brightness, brightness. It is the manifestation of God's glory. Here's another connection. God's judgment is unstoppable. God's judgment is unstoppable. When God was punishing Israel for their covenant infidelity, he describes his judgment with a metaphor that says it's swift, it's inescapable, you cannot run from it. Hosea 6, verse 5, he says, Therefore I have hewn them, I have cut them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. In other words, that the rebellious can escape the judgment of God about like you can avoid light. It can't be done. If I have a flashlight and I say, three, two, one, duck, when I turn it on, you will not beat that beam of light. You can't do it. That God's judgment is like a laser beam that will always find its target. There's another connection. God is my assurance of spiritual victory. God is my assurance of spiritual victory. In Micah verse 7, chapter 7 rather, God has threatened judgments to a, a decadent society. But on behalf of a little group, a little tiny group, a godly remnant, the faithful few, Micah expresses his hope, even as God will allow Israel's enemies to have victory for a time, here's his hope. He begins in verse 7 of chapter 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. 
Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. What's the context? Context of Micah 7 is the coming fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. Someday the Lord will make it rise again. By the way, our our Bible practically ends with the restoration of Jerusalem now called New Jerusalem, is literally the greatest and biggest city that the world has ever known. The biggest city by area on earth today is the New York metro area at 13,318 square miles. New Jerusalem, 2.75 billion cubic, not square, cubic miles. That's light from the darkness. That's spiritual victory. Now listen, those are just some of the general connections between God and light. The Old Testament gets even more specific that God will someday come in person. The hope for Messiah will come to save his people from their sin. And Isaiah in particular loves this metaphor. Let me just give you a few of them. Connection between God's Messiah and light. First, God's Messiah will take away sin's darkness. God's Messiah will take away sin's darkness. Isaiah 9 verse 2, very familiar to us. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great what? Light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Another connection, God's Messiah will invite all nations to be forgiven. All nations will be invited. Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. There's a third connection. God's Messiah will be the manifest glory of God. We saw that light is the manifest glory of God, but now Messiah will be the manifest glory of God. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's Messiah. In fact, just as a little detail... We get another connection. God's Messiah will replace any need for sun or moon. Replace any need for sun or moon. Isaiah 60, verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. And another connection. God's Messiah will take away all sadness and grief from those who love him. He'll take away all sadness and grief. And how is this pictured? Isaiah 60, verse 20, Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. I want you to take all those connections and just hold them, hold on to them. Because now we get to the New Testament, and we get to something called the Feast of Booths. We looked at the Feast of Booths in detail when we were in John 7, but that was a number of months ago, so I think it's useful for us to go back. And and remember the significance of the Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths, the Hebrew word is sukkah for booth or tent or tabernacle. It's the last in the series of festivals given to Israel as recorded in Leviticus 23. And it's very much a, a Thanksgiving type festival. And you should picture this. If you were on one of the roads to Jerusalem as you got closer and closer to to celebrate the Feast of Booths, you would see more and more people coming from all directions. As a matter of fact, there would be hundreds of thousands of people coming from Judea and from Galilee and even Jews that had been dispersed all over the earth during the exile. 
And as you approached the city, and especially as you entered the city, you'd see the strangest thing. It would look like everybody was having a camp out. There, there's tents or booths everywhere. The Jews would be, build temporary shelters of branches. It was a sukkah, a booth. They would build them in courtyards, rooftops, in and all around Jerusalem, on the roads. They were everywhere. It was a joyful holiday filled with celebration. It was also known as the Feast of the Ingathering because it was held at the end of the harvest season. This was commanded in Exodus 23. But the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles had a memorial purpose also, something to remember. It was a time to remember when Israel lived in tents and temporary shelters as, as God led them through the wilderness and provided for all of their needs, that even as God was chastening Israel by having them wander in the wilderness, he also graciously provided for them. So it was a memorial Thanksgiving time to remember God's graciousness and his provision. The Feast of Booths was the last seven days, and on the eighth day it ended the festival with a, a very solemn assembly. No labor was permitted on the first or the eighth days of the feast. Numbers 29, beginning of verse 12, outlines that there were animals to be offered as sacrifices. They were to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings. Every single day, offerings were given to the Lord in gratitude for his favor. But to the Jews, the sukkah, the, the tent, the temporary shelter, it wasn't just reminiscent of their personal accommodations as they were in the desert. It also spoke of the sukkah of God, as Numbers 9 records that over the tabernacle, the holy place where God met with his people, essentially the tent of God, the cloud and the fire of the glory of God would rest indicating that he was present with them, and they would call this the sukkah of God. Well, Jewish rabbis eventually coined the expression from that word, the shekinah, or shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God seen as light. And on top of that, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of the Sukkah, it had prophetic significance to the Jews as well, not just looking back, but looking forward. It looked ahead to the Messianic age when the coming of Messiah, God, he would come and dwell with them. And when we went through John 7, we talked about the nightly water drawing ceremony that happened each evening. And as the ceremony took place, the Levites played lyres. It's a small harp. They played trumpets, larger harps, cymbals, other instruments. A giant Levite choir sang with the songs. In the temple area, there were three, possibly four, golden candlesticks that were lit. These candlesticks, you ready for this, were 75 feet high. And they would put ladders up there, and it was a privilege to be a small boy, to be chosen to go up and to light these massive candles, candlesticks. And you could see them everywhere. You could see them in the city. You could see them outside the city. And as the ceremony progressed, the priest would blow the shofar, the ram's horn trumpet, three times, and the, the water ceremony was happening. And this was to celebrate Isaiah 12, verse 3, that with joy you will draw water from the wells of, thank, of, of salvation. It, it was like Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's all combined with a mu nightly musical celebration. But the major focus was really these giant lit-up candles, the light. And everyone could see these massive golden candlesticks that rolled all of the significance of the Feast of Booths into one package that God's presence lighted their way to, with the Shekinah glory, God's coming presence with them when Messiah comes to light their way. 
So now you understand that to the Jew, the connection between God and light was extremely detailed, extremely clear, extremely important. You understand that to them, God alone is the solution to darkness. That God has the character of steadfast love. That God's holiness will not endure sin. That God gives favor to those he chooses to love. That God will lead his people in love. That God will guard his people in love. That God will remind his people that he is present. That God is working even when we don't see him. That God gives good to those who love him. That God alone can lead through danger. That God is the only means to fearlessness. That God lights the way to spiritual victory. That God's light is the source of all true joy. That God is clothed in his own majesty. That God gives his light to illumine his own kindness. That God provides his wisdom in the word of God. That God invites people to receive forgiveness of sin. That God's glory is manifested as light. That God's judgment is unstoppable. That God is my assurance of spiritual victory. That God's Messiah will come to take away sin's darkness. God's Messiah will invite all nations to be forgiven. God's Messiah will be the manifest glory of God. God's Messiah will replace any need of sun or moon. God's Messiah will take away all sadness, take away all grief from those who love him. And now at the Feast of Booths that is rich with all that the Jews understand about the deep connection of God to light going all the way back to creation, on the last day of this feast, Jesus Christ stands up and he says, I am the light. Do you understand that that statement was power-packed? It was a claim to be God. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the wicked leaders of Israel railed against this. They should have shouted for joy. They should have fallen at his feet. Instead, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're saying that the person's own testimony about himself is invalid. And so Jesus gives four proofs that his testimony is true. First, Jesus alone can give self-testimony. Jesus alone can give self-testimony. Why? Because he has no superiors, no equals among humanity to testify for him. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. There are no expert witnesses who know about God compared to the one who is God. This is why, for example, We don't recognize that science has any authority to judge the Bible. The Bible is the highest authority of truth. Therefore, science, which is flawed, has no authority. I don't recognize the comparison. So Jesus is saying, what expert witness would you like me to call? I am God. Here's a second proof that his testimony is true. Jesus alone knew where he came from and where he was going. He says in the second half of verse 14, For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. No one there had been to heaven. Jesus could give a detailed description of every millimeter of heaven because he spent eternity there. 
They didn't even know where he was born on earth, to be honest with you. Look back at, verse, at chapter 7, verse 40. They couldn't even get the earthly part of Jesus right. Chapter 7, verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? All they had to say was, Jesus, where were you born? Verse 43, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So he compares himself to them as completely in the dark about everything and himself completely in the light. He says in verse 15 of chapter 8, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. They judge by appearances, they judge by what they thought was right, and they didn't have enough information. Now when it says here that Jesus said, "My, I judge no one, this is not to say that he's not going to judge someone. He's simply comparing himself to them. They have to take some evidence. Well, we've seen this, we've seen this, we think this, we've read this in the Bible. Let's put this all together and try and make a good judgment. Jesus said, I don't need to judge anything about Messiah. I am him. I know everything there is to know about Messiah. I know everything there is to know about God. As a matter of fact, I know everything there is to know about everything. I judge no one. There's a third proof that what he says is true. Jesus alone shares the Father's nature. Jesus alone shares the Father's nature. In verse 16, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. This is claiming equality with God in judgment and in knowledge, basically claiming equality with God. He made a similar claim in chapter 5, Beginning in verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He said, I share the father's nature. That's why what I say is true because God is true. And he gives a fourth proof. Jesus alone knows that he's not his only witness. He's not his only witness. Verse 17, he nails him. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. And right there, I imagine a pause where they all look at each other and nod. Yes, it's true. We finally agree on something. And then verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. In other words, there, is, there are two witnesses. And what he's referencing here is Deuteronomy 17 about the fact that two people make something true. So do we ever see the Father bear witness about the Son? We do. Mark 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And it happened again, by the way, Matthew 17 at the transfiguration of Jesus, where his glory as God is revealed because what did he become like? He became like light. And so Jesus claims, I am the light of the world. 
and he gives four proofs that his testimony is true, that Jesus alone can give self-testimony. Jesus alone knew where he came from and where he's going. Jesus alone shares the Father's nature, and Jesus alone knows that he's not his only witness. And these Jews who had the light of the world right in front of them asked the dumbest question in the history of humanity. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And the one whose judgment will come like unavoidable light condemns them. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He just condemned them to hell. You don't know my father. You don't know me. He is the light of the world. And after proclaiming himself to be of the light of the world, to take away darkness, what would Jesus do to demonstrate this? In the very next chapter, Jesus will take a man who has never seen light, a man who is born blind, and he will heal him and make him see, just to prove that he is the light. It's a perfect illustration of what Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We read the verses after this earlier. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, to the kingdom of the light in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As a matter of fact, do you know what happened in your darkened soul at the moment the Holy Spirit regenerated you and opened your spiritual eyes? Do you know who you first saw when you had your spiritual sight healed and when you came to life? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For God who said... Referring back to Genesis, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus the light is the first thing you saw with your regenerated heart. Because not only is Jesus the light of the world, he is the light of your world. He's the light of my world. And the hymn writer knew this when he said, Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Do not forget the light. If you have not come to the light, today is your chance. And if you have, be a better worshiper because of who he is. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for the light of the world, Jesus Christ. We're thankful to you for his love. We're thankful to you that he is the embodiment of all that you are. That if we have seen him, we have seen the Father. And this morning, through the word of God, we have seen Christ. We have sung of Christ. We have prayed of Christ. And so, Lord, we would thank you and bless you and ask you to make us better worshipers. We have... No other application this morning to this message except to ask you to help us to honor Christ more, that he might become more and we might become less. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.